As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the prose translation of the first psalm. That's the first psalm. And we'll read the entirety of this psalm this evening. The Word of our God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit, sorry, his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us richly this evening. The first psalm opens up with a picture, a picture of a man. And I think it's right for me to ask just, how do you see this man? I know the psalm is familiar to us. So how do you see the one who's described here? How do you see his character? How do you, for instance, look at what's depicted for us in that imagery of the tree? What does that look like in real life? All of those are crucial questions, questions that open for us the significance of this portion of God's word. Well, friend, we take up this first psalm this evening, really in the beginning of a series that could last us over three years, uh, taking a portion of God's word, one psalm at a time, uh, as we meditate together on how this is not only part of the divine word, but also part of Zion's praise. And so we take up this first psalm with that in mind, and all of those questions I opened with. As we approach this psalm, our question has to be, what is it that is communicated here? And how is it that this is an integral part of Zion's worship? We begin in the first verse, where we're told there that that man is blessed. Blessed is the man. Now, It's at this point that that it's right for me to point out to you that our our metrical Psalter is actually far more precise in its interpretation than than even the authorized version is. Uh, The word there, blessed, is not merely that this man has been given blessings. The word there in the original is that this man is blessed in the superlative. He has been given not only blessings, but the greatest and the highest of blessings. In other words, that this this man possesses, as again our Psalter reminds us, perfect blessedness. This man is extraordinarily blessed. Highest and greatest blessings belong to him. That's how the psalm opens. And as you go through the first verse, and you come to the last verse of the psalm, you'll notice that we never really leave the idea of blessing, but, but the blessing comes to us by way of contrast. The blessedness of the man that's in view here is set in stark contrast to the ungodly. But but even to draw that to perhaps greater precision, 
This contrast comes through not by just examining the persons, but examining the ways. This whole psalm is really structured around the way of the sinners, as opposed to the way of the righteous. This first psalm is then a distinction between these two ways, the way of the righteous that is blessed and the way of the wicked that leads to perdition. And the contrast comes to us as the psalmist brings to us the character of both and, of course, the ends of both. And friend, for our brief meditations this evening, the theme then is quite straightforward. It's simply that only the way of the righteous is blessed. Only the way of the righteous enjoys the superlative blessing that's communicated to us in the first verse. I want us to consider that in three ways. I want us to look, first of all, at the status of this blessed man. I want us to see something of his satisfaction. And then finally, I want us to look at his standing before God. So take, first of all, his status. And again, we go back to the first verse. He is one who does not... As we're told there, he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. As we read that, you and I, I know, quickly draw our attention to the idea that that this is a man who is not actively engaged in high-handed sin. His life isn't patterned around these kinds of rebelliousnesses that are in view here. The iniquity that's described here, this man, his, his life is built around this idea that he abstains from those things habitually. But I'd suggest to you that there is actually quite a bit more that's being given to us here in this first verse. You see, I want you to recognize, friend, that that in this first verse, he doesn't simply say that the man abstains from ungodliness, wickedness, and scorn. There's something here that, that I think we could quickly overlook, and that is that he does not walk. He does not stand, and he does not sit with those who do such things. There's no poetic flourish or license here. The godliness of the man that's described for us here is is greater than simply a man abstaining himself from his own sins in private. No, the purity of the man that's described here is a man who not only will keep himself from those sins, but he won't even allow himself any associations with the world that would be sinful. He won't allow himself to be complicit in the sins of any other. Friend, if you think about that just for a moment, you'll recognize that we are, of course, talking about a different, a higher degree of conscientiousness. The one who's described for us here is not only one who abstains himself from sin, but he has a conscience in terms of how he deals with others, that his dealings with them would in no ways contribute to their sin. That's the man that's described here in verse 1, a man not sinfully associated with the world. Friend, what you have then in this first verse is the description of a pilgrim. What you and I have here is a picture of a man who abstains from those close associations, sinful associations with the wicked. And that obviously, friend, is a solitary position. It's a very lonely status. But that's the man that's communicated to us here in the first verse. 
Is that the kind of man that you picture when you think of this psalm? A pilgrim. Moreover, a rather lonely one. You see, the way of the righteous, as we're given here, is, is really the way of pilgrimage. The Christian needs to be in the world. Obviously so. Paul, of course, reminds us, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must he needs go out of the world. Of course, of course this man, and of course the righteous, those who are truly Christians, they will have necessary associations with those who are wicked. In fact, Christ, of course, prays that he doesn't desire his people to come out of the world entirely. You're not supposed to envision here a monk. He's not conscripted of some kind of monastic order, not at all. But he is a pilgrim. And friend, as we see communicated to us in this first verse, he abstains from these things because of an inward disposition to stand aloof from sinners in their sin. I don't want to linger here too long this evening, but I'll just draw your attention to the fact, friend, that that this is part of the Christian's cross. This is part of the Christian's experience in this life, that that he must live among those who are ungodly. Uh, That that in in point of fact, he, he he is daily supposed to be horrified as he sees the ungodliness in his place of education, place of employment, in society in general. He has to have a heart aversion to the sinfulness that he sees about him. And this makes him a pilgrim, makes him careful not to become complicit in the sins of any. A friend, what you have here then is a picture of a man who is careful not to make alliances, sinful alliances with the world. He must be in the world, that's part of his cross, but he is not so in the world as to be, again, complicit in the sins of any. Friend, in the scriptures, there are many ways in which we can become complicit in the sins of others. Obviously, you and I can become complicit whenever we actually enjoin ourselves in sinful alliances. The prophets, of course, went to Israel and to Judah time and again, reminding them of this fact. To join in sinful confederacies is a heinous and aggravated sin for the people of God. Say not, ye a confederacy to all them to whom this people say a confederacy, Isaiah tells Judah. But friend, there's another way in which we can be complicit in the sins of others, and that is, of course, just mimicking their sin. This is something that's right throughout all of Scripture. You and I, even if we don't necessarily associate ourselves publicly with those who are engaged in wickedness, if we ourselves engage in the wickedness in which they find themselves, then, friend, we are also considered complicit. We have a kind of alliance struck with them, and you see this throughout the prophets. You see this, for instance, in Jeremiah 3. God says to to Judah, he says, I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I'd put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Now you remember Jeremiah is speaking to about two nations that politically are distinct. They have very different histories at this stage in history, and they have very different governments, but yet, because Judah follows Israel in the same pattern of sin, he says that these two are alike. They are joined one in another. 
Because, friend, even if they were not through a a formal political confederacy engaged in the same sin, the fact was that as they were sinning together individually in the same ways, God saw them as allied. But then finally, friend, the scriptures hold out that you and I can be allied to the world in a way that's unlike the man in verse 1, simply in our thoughts and affections. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Obviously, affections are part and parcel to the pilgrim's life here. He must have an affection that is averse to all of those kinds of sinful associations to which our psalm directs our attention. What you see here, friend, is a picture of a man who, like Moses, chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. A friend, as you look at this text, there is something else that comes to us out of this illustration, and that is, as you look through this first psalm, you'll recognize that time and again, the wicked are described in plurality. The godly, almost every instance is described singularly. It's not because there would only be one godly person in a generation, but that does show us the relative singularity, the relative scarcity of the one that's described here. It's not only the case that the wicked are like chaff in the sense that they're easily driven away. They're also like chaff in the sense that there are many. There is a great plurality of the wicked and a very small number of the ones that are described here in verse 1. No, the one who's described here is like a solitary tree by a river. Whereas those with whom he stand, to whom he stands aloof in these sinful associations, there are many like the chaff. My friend, that's the status. He's a pilgrim. But what of his satisfaction? As you come to verse 3, you'll notice, sorry, verse 2 rather, his delight, we're told, is in the law of the Lord. And the question you and I have to ask is, of course, what are we being taught here? Well, we're supposed to see here that there is, of course, a contrast in affections. The godly man here described is from the heart, distinct from the ones whom he stands aloof from. But I want you to recognize that the Psalter here is giving us a picture of the flow of his godliness as well. In other words, what you see here is the root cause, if you will, of of his fruition the root cause for for his abstaining from these sinful confederacies is because he has a heart that is inclined to God. Now, as we look at the word, the law of the Lord, you and I might ask, of course, well, is this referring to the Decalogue? Is it just that the man here described has a love for the Ten Commandments? Or or are we to take this in its broadest sense? And friend, I'd submit to you that that we don't even need to ask the question in one sense. Um, the first commandment enjoins us to believe and, it, and to do everything that comes from the lips of God. Um, and so you and I are supposed to understand here that the man has an affection for all that God has told him to do and all that God has told him to believe. And we see, friend, that as you look at this text, the man does so. He carries himself toward the word of God in this way by meditating on it day and night. And friend, I know that this is poetry. It's intended to be read as poetry, but this is not a poetic flourish. What you and I are encountering here is the habit of the man here clearly and literally described. 
It is, as it were, his waking and his closing thought. The word of God, both in terms of what he is to believe and what he is to do. This is that which, as it were, satisfies the heart of the godly man. What this teaches us, then, is that the way of the righteous requires heart holiness. You and I need to ask a question. Uh, I think we need to ask a question um, to really understand not only this first psalm, but really the the entire warp and woof of, of the piety communicated to us in the Psalter. And that is, what is the character of this heart holiness? What really is it? What does it? What does it mean here to have such an inclination? Where does that flow from, friend? If you look back to Jeremiah seventeen, you'll find that portions of this first psalm and portions of the second psalm are quoted by the prophet. I want to read to you just those portions. He says, "Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is." For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and and shall not see when he cometh, but her leaf shall be green. Shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Friend, I read that to you. Of course, the prophet Jeremiah is drawing on this image of the tree uh, there that's planted by the river, river and is fructified. But I want you to notice how he described the one that's there. In Psalm 1, we're told that this one who so flourishes is one who delights in the law of the Lord. In Jeremiah, he says that same one is the one who trusts in the Lord and makes the Lord his hope. Now, friend, there's no contradiction there. What you and I are seeing through the prophet Jeremiah is clear. He's not imagining some kind of, of legal delight in the law of the Lord. No, friend, the heart holiness that's described to us in in Psalm 1, according to the prophet Jeremiah, is that holiness that flows from the heart that trusts in the Lord. In other words, friend, we're talking about evangelical gospel holiness in Psalm 1. If you ask the prophet Jeremiah, how is it that this one delights in the law of the Lord? He would say because he has a heart possessed of faith toward his God. It's very clear in Jeremiah 17, and it should be clear to us. What you see here then in Psalm 1 is that this holiness and this delight flows from a faith, flows from a heart that exercises saving faith. What it teaches us then, the walk that's in view here, the way of the righteous is nothing less than the walk of faith, described so many times for us in the New Testament, a walking after the Spirit, as we read it in Romans 8. The man here has a delight because he rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Friend, you see this in the scriptures, and I I would stress this to you. I know I stress this often enough, but this is the only way to true holiness. There is, the Bible knows, no holiness apart from those who have a heart that exercises saving faith. There is no true legal holiness. The only holiness that the scriptures know that's acceptable to God is that which is exercised by a believing man. Friend, you see this clearly throughout the scriptures. Let me just read to you one from Hebrews 10. He tells that congregation that they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. And how did they have that patience? How were they persevering in the midst of that difficulty? Well, he tells us, he says that they knowing in themselves 
that they have a heaven, they have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And what was it that the, the apostle says was the root of their holiness there? It was because these ones who persevered did so by faith. I want you to know, friend, that here you and I are reminded, even in this psalm, even in this psalm, that one's holiness cannot outrun one's faith. One must be believing to be made holy. But we close by looking at the man standing. And that comes to us, of course, several times throughout the Psalter. It comes to us several times throughout our psalm. The ungodly, says the Lord, shall not stand. They shall perish, he says. That's the end of the wicked. But what of the end of the righteous? We're told here that the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. Now, we're speaking, of course, of the omniscient God. And, and so the question is, how are we supposed to take this word knowing? In his omniscience, does he not know the end of the wicked as well? Of course he does. This knowing here, then, is supposed to be taken anthropopathically. In other words, the Lord is accommodating, accommodating his language here to show us something of his disposition toward the godly, communicating, as it were, a human affection so that we could understand that our God is so inclined to his people. It's anthropopathism to show us that the way of the righteous is a delight to God. He knows it, not merely notionally. He knows it, as it were, with delight. Now, friend, what you see here then is then the believing, the fruitful life is well-pleasing to the Lord. This pleasing aspect of it is not meritorious. It's not as though these ones have earned, merited anything. And it certainly is not sinless in this life. So how are we to understand this? How is it that if the man remains, as, of course, Luther said so many times, that we are um, simultaneously sinner and justified, how is it that God can delight in this? The answer comes to us clearly from 1 Peter 2. Though his people are not sinlessly perfect in this life, their spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That is, their works are received through Christ. They merit nothing. Their works stand not one moment apart from him. But as they are a genuine work of grace, the psalm reminds us that the Lord does delight in their walk. He does delight in the magnificence of his own work in their heart. And as we close, friend, that brings us back to the many images that you and I read of in the Song of Solomon, where this is communicated to us time and again. You remember in chapter 1 that we read, you remember there that the bride describes herself as black and as spotted. She even urges the daughters of Jerusalem not to look upon her because she is, she is so blemished. I want you to remember what Christ says of the church in the fourth chapter. He says to her, thou hast ravished my heart. One commenting on this text says, in this text you are to see that Christ's love to a believer hath a strong and wonderful effect on him. And when Christ goes on to say, with one of thine eyes and with one chain of thy neck, 
It is not only then the strong believer and the strong acts of faith and love that prevail with Christ, but he condescends to be overcome, as it were, even by the weakest, with whom the sincerity of these graces is to be found. Friend, that's the very idea that's communicated to us in this last verse of Psalm 1. He delights in the godly, not because they have merited anything, but because by the works of grace in their own hearts, he is pleased, as Durham there puts it, to condescend to be overcome. Their sincere, though meager works of obedience and faith are nonetheless well-pleasing to him. The ways of the righteous, they are known to the Lord. And so, friend, as we close this text this evening, the question I'd like to return to is, why is this in our Psalter? Are we here just marveling at the picture of, of piety, as it were, for piety's sake alone? The answer to that question is straightforward. The answer is, of course, no. You and I are to recognize, friend, that really, this first psalm opens the Psalter quite appropriately by extolling God for the work of making men new. Later on, we'll encounter that the Psalter knows full well that naturally man does not seek God. And so what this first psalm does is it extols the God who does conform men to the image of his Son, who creates them in Christ Jesus to good works, who makes them to walk the ways of the righteous. Friend, this is such a fitting, a fitting way for us to enter the worship of God. Because, friend, the only way that one worships God sincerely and truly is through Jesus Christ making them the very one described for us this evening. The comfort for those who are in Christ, friend, in this psalm, it's manifold. The way of the righteous is known to the Lord. That is, it is well-pleasing to him. And as we saw before, that even though they are spotted in themselves, even though they see so many blemishes in themselves, as they sincerely and earnestly endeavor obedience, and of course, including within that, lamenting their own manifest weakness, the psalm nevertheless reminds us that the Lord is well pleased with their way. Friend, I don't know how many other incentives I could give you that are greater than these to run the way of the righteous? That even one look from his people's eyes, as it were, ravishes the heart of Christ. Surely, friend, that should induce us to pray more, to walk more closely with him, to abstain more from worldliness, truly to walk in the way of the righteous, to be pilgrims. May the Lord lead us in this work for his own name's sake, that in this place his name would be exalted all the more for his wondrous work of grace. Amen.